0: Welcome to the New Books Network. In the letter to the Hebrews, the consciousness of sin is a present problem for the recipients as a stain that causes dread, timidity, and restricted access. And it is also a cosmic problem, with the heavenly tabernacle needing to be purged of defilement. Join us as we speak with Joshua Bloor about his recent book, Purifying the Consciousness in Hebrews. Hebrews, he explains, distinguishes between what Jesus achieves on earth and what he achieves in heaven. Bloor further offers an understanding of the motif of consciousness of sin and its role within Hebrews' cultic argumentation. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Joshua Bloor is visiting lecturer at Nazarene Theological College, UK. He's a pastor in Manchester and is the Leadership Program Director for the UK Pioneer Network of Churches. Josh, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies.
1: Well, thank you, Michael, and thank you for inviting me on the podcast.
0: So tell us about yourself and how you became interested in Hebrews.
1: Yes, certainly. Well, my name is Josh Blore. I'm a pastor in Manchester in the UK, where, as well as pastoring, most of my role includes teaching and providing resources for my church. as as well as helping to train emerging pastors across the UK. I'm also a visiting lecturer at Nazarene Theological College in Manchester, where I teach various classes and more recently and more relevant to this podcast, we finished a class on Hebrews, which continued to provoke new questions for myself and and for the class as well. I'm a husband to Charlotte and I'm a dad to our daughter Iris, who turned two recently. In terms of how I came to be interested in Hebrews, I would say that it began in an ecclesial context in my home group. I was given the task of looking into Hebrews chapter 9 and really um, I didn't know too much about Hebrews. I I read read it before, um, but it seemed a book that was kind of hidden towards the end of the New Testament it wasn't a short book it was quite long really in in comparison to the books in the New Testament and it was probably the most mysterious starts quite mysteriously has lots of um, confusing and um, interesting topics so that's kind of where it began for me we had a good conversation around Hebrews 9 in my home group but it led to lots of questions and this coincided perfectly because uh, at the same time I entered a master's program also in Manchester in sort of 2012-2013 straight out of university Um, and so I had the opportunity to explore not just Hebrews but um, Greek and the the, the biblical languages and yeah just uh, the opportunity to uh, go full-time in that and in one of my essays, I explored the idea of perfection, holiness, purity, language in Hebrews, and um, it was in this essay that I um, got the chance to examine this notion of uh, conscience or consciousness um, and the fact that it's described as being purified, and what does that mean? And and I discovered in my research that the issue was was both misunderstood and. Are underappreciated in Hebrew scholarship, at least in terms of its significance in 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 the argument of Hebrews. And so, as I studied ancient Greek texts and Second Temple writings like Philo and Josephus, I discovered that consciousness or awareness was a more accurate rendering um, for the Greek term that 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 we get sunedesis. Um, which sometimes is translated as, as conscience. Um, I just found that sometimes um, how modern notions of conscience, at least in terms of, as, a, as a moral guide, uh, often interfered with Hebrews and other ancient writers who, when I look, they seem to associate this this Greek term with condemning past actions. So um, consciousness or awareness of sin, opened up further questions for me uh, in terms of Hebrews and I was also extremely interested in how this related with the language of purification I mean that invokes cultic priestly language and so I just had lots of questions as how did all of this come about how does it all fit together and how does it all fit together with Hebrews's sacrificial argumentation and during this time you know Hebrew scholarship was experiencing a revival um and 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 new exciting ideas around sacrifice were developing and 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 so you know something exciting seemed to be happening in hebrews so so i wanted to join in and so i stayed in manchester i i was born not too far from manchester i grew up in the peat district so it was all very close and for me didn't have to travel very far which was nice and i entered a phd program initially with was the plan is was doing it full time but due to various circumstances i just had to slow down to, to part time and it took slightly longer than i I'd, I'd hoped and then when i thought i was almost finished and um, we had covid um and they closed all the libraries and so i had to sort of apply for more time uh but thankfully by god's grace i defended my viva two years ago and this is where we find ourselves now you know the book's out and uh Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it a little bit more in this podcast.
0: Now, much of your book deals with the idea of purging the consciousness in Hebrews. Would you orient us to this topic and to its importance for the argument of Hebrews?
1: Yeah, thanks, Michael. Certainly. Well, firstly, a few scholars have viewed the issue of consciousness of sin as central um, in hebrews and so a couple of these actually uh, coincidentally manchester-based scholars we had gordon thomas who was new testament lecturer at nazarene theological college and we had barnabas linders who was the rylands professor of biblical criticism and exegesis uh, in the 1980s and linders described uh, the consciousness of sin in, in hebrews as the crucial issue Uh, And his argument is something like this. While much of early Christian proclamation kind of concerned the issue of forgiveness of past sins. So you think about uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. uh, Christ died for our sins. You know, this is the focus of early Christianity. Uh, Linda says nothing was uh, said about sins uh, of the present or post-baptismal sins. And so that's the question, isn't it? Christ died for our sins, but what about current, present sin? And he says that maybe the sense of a delayed parousia sort of added and created this problem. So Linders suggests that this community of Jewish Christians, and I know that's not a helpful phrase, they were tempted to return to their previous ritualistic practices um, the sacrificial cult in, in order to, to deal with this problem of present consciousness of sin. After all, I mean sacrificial rituals seem to help seem to have helped God's people deal with the issue of present sin historically. Now Linda's sort of suggests this is a, a serious issue and could result in apostasy. And so the purpose of Hebrews is to provoke and convince the recipients of the power of Christ's death in order to deal with this present consciousness of sin um, and to persevere and not to return to former practices. Now, um, in reading Linda's Linda's book, I was um, sort of inspired. It answers a lot of questions for me. But then it helped me to kind of critique it and I also had a lot of issues with his narrative, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, so for me, Hebrews 9 verse 9 was was critical in, in the early stages of this project. It states that in this present time, um, so the current situation of the recipients, gifts and sacrifices are being offered that cannot perfect their consciences and and this is what i I call the the present problem in, in my second chapter and the recipients live in an overlap of the ages they live in this interim period between the present time and what hebrews calls the time of correction or the time of reformation depending on how you translate the term and and this in between space characterizes so much of the the teething pains of early christianity so much of trying to figure out what this Jesus movement looks like and, and what it should keep and, and what it should let go of. And and so the recipients in Hebrews, they find themselves soteriologically unfulfilled. And so in this in-between space, um, one of those issues was the consciousness of sin. Uh, and I argue that, that this is expressed in different ways in Hebrews. And um, it's also called dead works. It's called a reminder. It's all remembrance. It's, and and it's simply just referred to as, as sins. And, um, the effects of having a consciousness of sin or a defiled consciousness, I argue, based on sort of Second Temp- Temple literature, um, is is to possess a stain. And it's to also uh, a sense of dread. And it's to have an experience of timidity. And the result of this is a sense of restricted access. These are kind of like the four things I look at. But also apostasies there because, you know, Returning to a previous group setting is a fear for the author. But for the recipients, it's, it's a chance to return to a ritualistic life which might deal with this issue of consciousness of sin. And so a key starting point for me is situating Hebrews within the realm of defilement. And, and that's what I do in chapter 2. Um, defilement is um, experienced on a communal but also a cosmic level. Um, Old Testament cultic defilement seems to provide a very helpful background for understanding sin and, and defilement in Hebrews. Um, for Hebrews, the defilement of the heavenly tabernacle is is, is a great problem, um, Hebrews 9.23. Um, but why is it? Because, well, according to Priestly 4, the, the sinful status of humanity and the defilement of the sanctuary have a link, have a relationship and and this is where in chapter four, I'll go on to argue that something happens here, correspondence when the, the heavenly sanctuary is purged, the recipient's consciousness of sin is also purged. It's also purified. So I suppose my main contribution here was asking, um, how does Jesus's heavenly offering add and fit into this narrative? So for me, it was not a case of Reaffirming the death of Jesus in order to deal with this present issue of consciousness of sin. This is Linders' argument. As far as I see it, the community already know about Jesus' death, and presumably it was important in their community. Um, and also, another idea that kind of gets thrown around is that the community were sinning and needed sorting out. And um I don't see that either. I think we got a mature community. In fact, in, in Hebrews chapter five, I think it is, you know, that the author says that the recipients should be teaching the contents of this letter themselves. Um instead, I, I propose that the community deeply missed their ritualistic background and found Christian teaching about the forgiveness of past sins unfulfilling. So I agree with Linda's here. You know, they, they feel unclean, they feel defiled and they're conscious of it. But the author of Hebrews in a pastoral manner invites them into a heavenly cultic ritual. And he does not do this by separating Christianity from Judaism. Christianity is never contrasted with Judaism in Hebrews. There is only ever one people of God. So in this sort of interim period, they are encouraged to leave behind the earthly cult, which is wearing away the language in Hebrews there and... because now they're being invited into this heavenly cult, this heavenly ritual, which was initiated, begun um, following the the death of Jesus, starts that new covenant. But then we have this blood uh, offering ritual in heaven, and and this is offered, I argue, perpetually. It's once for all, perpetual, um, and it deals with their consciousness of sin and it purges it perpetually. And and now they have perpetual assurance regarding their own pure status
0: so what are some of the problems or deficiencies in previous scholarship that you hope to address
1: yeah thank you well firstly i am so thankful and indebted to the quality of hebrew scholarship and just the wonderful scholars i've had the pleasure of interacting with um and yeah I'm, i'm just appreciative for the mutual respect and just the ability to have these different opposing viewpoints. Um, and so in, in the introduction to my book, I, I sort of answer your question here. Um, I reflect on the advancement of recent Hebrew scholarship. And I observe that scholars have rightly asked these new questions around Jesus's sacrifice and atonement and, and all of that. And these new questions are essentially, when, where, you know, what did Jesus offer Was his offering on heaven? Was it in earth? Was it both? Is it a sequence? Is it a parallel? You know, what's going on here? But in all of these discussions, I kind of noticed that the recipients were absent from the discussion. And I thought this was a problem because sacrifice and the cult is for people to participate in and to benefit for their own for their own benefit. You know, God is involved in, in sacrifice, but really God does not need sacrifice, at least in the same way that, that we do. And, and so this absence of the audience um, becomes something that intrigued me. So uh, essentially, you know, scholars have spent important time locating Jesus' offering, but but maybe they have neglected to ask why a heavenly offering might be significant for the recipients and the community. And so um, in, in my opening chapter, I propose four main ways scholars have attempted to incorporate the issue of conscience in Hebrews. Essentially, the term is rarely viewed on its own for what it is. You know, Some scholars try and fit it into this platonic framework along with the idea of a rational soul. Others uh, democratize it, so they view it as synonymous with the heart or the soul um, some suggest that to purify the conscience just means forgiveness or even justification. So um, some view it also under this supersessionistic view that, you know, the old covenant purged externally, but Jesus now purges internally. You know, this so-called true religion. And and I go into more detail on chapter one uh, on this, but suffice to say, uh, these and other similar views I found massively distorted Hebrews and what is actually going on. And so uh, as a result, this is the main deficiency, I guess, I I found in Hebrew scholarship that I wanted to address the motif of consciousness of sin and what this means in terms of its role within Hebrews and the sacrificial argumentation. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, you know, there's lots of issues that this consciousness of sin motif brings to the surface and um, restricted access, dread, timidity, the stain of defilement, temptation to abandon the community. But my overarching argument is that Jesus' heavenly blood offering purges the heavenly sanctuary and results in the purification of the consciousness of sin. And this reverses these negative realities. So, uh, you know, you had restricted access, but now you've got boldness and confidence to approach the presence of God. Um, And you've got this perpetual assurance of of a pure status and depending on how far you want to take my conclusions potentially a form of sacrificial amnesia you know we're talking about purging removing the consciousness or awareness of sin well we can talk about that as sacrificial amnesia potentially and so i also do try and look at this a little bit practically both uh, in in hebrews and, and in the contemporary church Um, i mean hopefully we can talk about this Later, but I, I did notice that there's often the temptation for Hebrews scholarship to kind of lump key soteriological terms together. Whether that's redemption, atonement, purification, f- forgiveness, uh, they seem to all come under one uh, one thing. But but in this book, I take a more sensitive approach towards each term, and I try and locate them as occurring on earth or, or occurring in, in heaven. And I mean, I know this is changing, but scholarship uh, st- in Hebrew still has this air of supersessionism. And I think in this book, I try to show Levitical sacrifices as part of the spiritual heritage of Hebrews. You know, rather than pitting them against one another, Levitical sacrifices, as far as I see it, should be viewed as the divine foundation for Jesus' sacrifice. Um, also, uh, I think scholarship stops short, really, at comparing Jesus' sacrifice with Yom Kippur, generally. I wanted to go further. I found considerable fruit around the role of guilt in Leviticus, the asham, and um, Hebrews' notion of consciousness of sin. And I'm hoping we can talk about that later a bit more. I suppose I also wanted to bring clarity around the nature of Jesus' offering. Scholars typically land between a once-for-all offering or a perpetual offering in relation to Jesus' heavenly offering. So in chapter 5, I argue that these polar opposites are unnecessary. I show that Jesus' heavenly blood offering can be both, once-for-all, perpetually. I also offer clarity around Jesus' heavenly blood. Scholars who propose a heavenly offering mention Jesus' heavenly blood but they see it as either referring to his presence, his body, his his death, himself, um, whatever. Um, and so the result of this is the actual role of Jesus' heavenly blood is is never entertained. Uh, it's either, like I say, his presence, his body, sitting down, whatever it is. This is what denotes the substance of his offering. But uh, in this book, um, I seek to kind of solve these tensions by arguing for an independent role. For Jesus's heavenly blood, um, as well as Jesus as a high priest, these having the separate roles really. Um, Jesus' blood, which was offered uh, in heaven and continues to speak perpetual assurance for the recipients. Josh, would you
0: walk us through the cosmic
1: purgation section of your book as it relates to purifying the conscience? Absolutely, I'd love to. I mean, I wrote it two years ago, so I will try my best to cover an overview of this. So. Purifying the Consciousness: Cosmic Purgation. That's the title of the second part of this book, and the book's in in three parts. So, so in this second part of the book, um, there's a chapter three and there's chapter four, and and the aim of this section of the book, part two, is to solve the problem raised in part one, which was what I labelled as the present problem of synodesis, uh, or consciousness, as, as I render it, consciousness of sin. So so let's begin then. So with chapter 3, I begin with an up-to-date overview of scholarship surrounding Hebrews' cultic argumentation, or sometimes referred to as uh, Hebrews' sacrificial Logic. Um, now, most of the scholars I looked at viewed the Day of Atonement as central to understanding Hebrews' cultic argumentation. Whether they locate Jesus' offering on earth or in heaven, uh, this is the key ritual. Um, but for those who hold a so called sequence approach, um, Jesus died on earth and offered himself in heaven. Um, and so the Day of Atonement acts as an overarching hermeneutic a sort of umbrella where everything is is forced to squeeze into it um but but with this view i saw a lot of issues namely you cannot match the day of atonement to jesus's death and heavenly offering like for like i think of the card game snap where you have to match the cards and so the question in my mind is well how are we meant to take this you know are we really expected to draw a correlation between the burning of the fat on the altar in Leviticus 16, verse 25, with the uh, sacrifice of Jesus in Hebrews. I mean, no one claims this, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not building a straw man argument. I'm just inviting the readers to consider what is it that Hebrews does choose to focus on and include. Um, So, for instance, the death of Jesus is, is never compared with the slaughter of a sacrificial animal in Hebrews. Interestingly, it is suffering which seems uh, to focus Hebrews in terms of Jesus' earthly life, suffering in Jesus' earthly life. Lots to talk about there, I'm sure. Um, But but this idea of pairing the death of Jesus with the slaughtered animal is assumed by scholars who employ this overarching Yom Kippur hermeneutic or day of atonement hermeneutic. Now, the, the, the blood of Jesus, as as I and others argue, is used in Hebrews in reference to the blood offering in Leviticus sixteen. But but this is not an invitation then to just go and apply the whole ritual to Jesus in in Hebrews. And um, some people might say, doesn't the blood imply Jesus's death? Um, well, maybe. I mean, it also implies his life. And um, and there's certainly a connection there. But Hebrews does not feel the need to make this connection. Um, Rather, a blood offering in heaven is where his focus is is placed. Why? Well, as I see it, because he's trying to rhetorically address this present problem of consciousness of sin. Now, let's just suppose for a minute that Hebrews is wanting to impose this overarching uh, Yom Kippur logic. Well, what tradition of Yom Kippur is Hebrews meant to be following exactly? I mean, there isn't just one out there. Uh, Another problem here is that we do not just have the Day of Atonement in Hebrews. We have the red heifer ritual, the ordination of the priests, the covenant inauguration, Passover. Um, There's lots of things going on. My proposal here is that the Day of Atonement is utilized in Hebrews. Yes, it is 100%, but only in relation to the blood sprinkling and Jesus' heavenly offering. Um, this reading, I believe, allows important early Christian narratives to exist in harmony together. And connected to that, you know, another problem I raise is around the word atonement. And this is, of course, an English word we get from Tyndale. But I and others understand uh, this. You know, what's really what we're really getting at here is is the Hebrew meaning of to to purge. Um, in relation to sin, you know, in Leviticus 16. Um, but 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 I noticed that scholars use atonement in, in Hebrew, the term atonement synonymous with, with other terms, whether that's forgiveness, redemption, sanctification. Again, this is a result of the overarching Yom Kippur hermeneutic. Uh, in fact, if we read Leviticus 16, it says nothing about forgiveness. It says nothing about redemption. In fact, that the main focus is Purification, purgation of the sanctuary of sins, and um, yet they are all forced. These different terminologies uh, are all forced into this Yom Kippur typology, and um, when in fact, as I see it, they are things achieved in different times and spaces. The redemption and the forgiveness of for sins is obtained on earth, and purgation of the present awareness or consciousness of sins is, is, is occurs in heaven. So, so what I I aim to do f- throughout this book, and specifically in chapter 3 and 4, is, is to be sensitive to these various satiriological terms and not to lose their distinctives or allow them to be absorbed into an, uh, an, an overarching Yom Kippur narrative. And so uh, from this place, uh, I explore these fr- uh, key passages in Hebrews. There's lots of passages, of course, but chapter 3, I really look at um, chapter 9. Uh, sorry, so chapter 3 in, in, in the book I look at Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 11 through to 17. Then I look at uh, verses 24 through to 28. And then I look at chapter 10, verses 5 through to 14. And um, in, in each of these three passages, obviously I can't go into detail now, but I, I argue that two offerings can be observed. An earthly offering and a heavenly offering. Now, other people have proposed this too, uh, but I, I argue this in a slightly different way. For instance, I suggest that Jesus' earthly offering obtains objective soteriological achievements, but his heavenly offering obtains subjective achievements. An earthly offering of Jesus' life, his obedient life, culminating in death, and a heavenly offering, his blood offering, you know. So in my interpretation of, of so look at Hebrews 9, uh, verses 24 through to 28, you know, this this section there, I suggest that Jesus was Offered up on earth, um, in order to bear away the sins of many in heaven. There's a dual offering going on there. So, um, in terms of the first earthly offering, you know, we know that every high priest has has to uh, make an offering for themselves. Um, Jesus was different. Um, his earthly life, you could argue, was his offering. Uh, this is what uh, I kind of get at in um, Hebrews chapter ten via psalm 40 that Jesus' earthly life from beginning to end displayed unmatchable obedience so much so that his earthly life can be said to sanctify believers so i work with the with the language of soma body where we t- typically get body there um, and try and see soma as a uh, yeah a bit broader than just the death of jesus but maybe his 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 life as well so i have some uh, fun there and you know, in terms of this earthly offering, there's other things it achieves. We've got, um, you know, eternal redemption is how I read into that. We've got the initiation of a new covenant. Covenant, but then in chapter two in Hebrews, we see Jesus defeating the devil, and I argue for this a apocalyptic assurance, and also uh, the Paschal Lam, um in that as well. Um, this is only half the story you know when jesus enters heaven uh, i argue that his heavenly blood obtains even more soteriological benefits and these are distinct from his earthly achievements it is here in heaven where hebrews introduces cultic levitical specific themes such as a purgation you got the sanctuary you got blood manipulation and purity this is where hebrews begins i argue most of its interest its main interest in yom kippur and so while Jesus's earthly achievements are vast, the purification of the consciousness does not seem to be one of them. It's only through Jesus's heavenly blood offering that the purgation of the consciousness can be located. So if we return then, so we look to the beginning of chapter three in my in my book, I argue against this overarching Yom Kippur hermeneutic, and the reason for that is because. I believe the author is deliberately selective concerning Old Testament typology. And he does this because he wants to distinguish between what Jesus achieves on earth objectively in relation to sin and what he achieves in heaven subjectively in relation to the consciousness of sin. So that's chapter three. And then we come to chapter four. And I begin um, in chapter four just by reestablishing a connection I made in chapter two between the status of the people and the tabernacle, um, within the cult and so i begin with the premise that the solution to heavenly defilement is christ's heavenly blood which in turn coincides with the purification of the consciousness and i suggest hebrews is working with a similar understanding espoused by uh, jacob milgram with his aerial miasma Um, and and then i give attention uh, to understanding how hebrew scholarship has understood purification in hebrews in relation to conscience or consciousness and the most dominant reading is an internal external negative contrast and the argument often goes like this uh, old covenant sacrifices could only purge externally not internally but now jesus is offering purges us internally if you read the commentaries and monographs this is everywhere okay and I give the sources mainly due to uh, the sort of uh, Sarks, the flesh, and the the the, uh, the conscience, the, these terms being so close together in Hebrews 9. But after lots of analysis, I conclude that the contrast in Hebrews is not between flesh and conscience, um, or earthly, as I translate that there, and um, but between earthly and heavenly blood. That's the contrast. Um, and so I kind of also stick up for Levitical sacrifice. After all, it's in the Bible, it was ordained by God and so on and so forth. So let's at least try and understand it. So I explore sacrificial ritual and like others, I conclude that this was not simply an external exercise, but sacrificial ritual includes a very real internal element. And this is where uh, I, got, I got a lot of fruit from Levit- Leviticus and I argue for a connection between Levitical and, a sham, what we often translate as guilt, and um, Hebrews' notion of the consciousness of sin. And I found it really interesting. Some Old Testament scholars translate a sham as consciousness of sin. Um, we, We read verses in Leviticus that say, when you are aware of your sin, or when you are conscious of your sin, bring an offering. So we see in Leviticus that sacrificial offerings were triggered by one's internal awareness or consciousness of sin so somehow by bringing an offering it is assumed that this will deal with one's consciousness of sin so i argue that levitical um, typically translated as guilt foreshadows and informs Hebrews' notion of the consciousness of sin and rather controversially i argue that levitical sacrifices could purge the consciousness but only Jesus' heavenly blood can offer perpetual purgation. You know, Hebrews never says Levitical offerings could not purge the consciousness. The author is very careful with the terms he uses here. He chooses perfection language, not purification language, when he brings up the problem of consciousness of sin in nine 9.9. And, and these terms are related, but not the same. According to Hebrews 9.13, the earthly sacrificial system did purify God's people. Now this is um, where people misunderstand Hebrews and point to chapter ten and 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 the first four verses and say, uh, you know, look, Levitical sacrifices could never purify uh, this issue of consciousness. Um, but let's slow down and read it because it never says that. In fact, it seems to suggest that sacrifices work, but that these particular ones lacked perfection. So we might concede that these offerings were weak, but they were not ineffective. Otherwise. They would not keep being offered. The, the, the people of God believed they worked. That's the important thing. Yet the great thing about Jesus' heavenly blood offering is, is it's a willing offering. It's a willing human blood offering. But that, more importantly, it's continually speaking in heaven. So maybe we can chat about this later. But essentially, Hebrews does not do away with ritual. It simply relocates it in heaven. And then, I mean, I also kind of go after this uh, notion of forgiveness of sins, and I argue it's not in Hebrews. At least it's not the focus, and and I argue the term's not there either, but the emphasis in Hebrews is on purging sins, and this is a deliberate, conceptual, metaphorical choice by the author. From start to finish, Hebrews' focus is on purging sins, not forgiving them. Hebrews understands the, the problems of the world, if you will, with defiled, tinted glasses, where sin is a stain that needs purging, not a debt that needs uh, forgiving. Sin is, is spoken of as needing to be removed, done away with, taken away, purified, sprinkled clean. This is the language we get. Now, I realize I do need to account for the English translations, which... You know, it, it translate in Hebrews 9.22 and in 10.18, we, we translate the aphasis as forgiveness um, and, you know, forgiveness of sins. Sometimes that of sins part of the clause is supplied in translation. It's not there in the Greek. Uh, and I, I think that aside from lexical arguments, as I mentioned earlier, the recipient's do not need a sermon on forgiveness. Um, they need assurance of purgation. They have a troubling sense of guilt and awareness of sin. They feel unclean, defiled, unable to approach God. They need, I like how Jacob Milgram puts it in relation to Levitical sacrifices, they need more than forgiveness. They need more than forgiveness. And I think we find in light of our relationships in life, that sometimes forgiveness is not enough. We can forgive someone or ourselves and yet feel unclean and something isn't right. And so um, I choose to translate the the term we get there, a thesis, um, as something like purgation. And, and I'm not alone in this, thankfully. Other scholars argue for that as well. And um, you know just an aside point and um, sometimes when you're writing a thesis you think you make a certain point clearly but realize then um, that you made it more in your head and it's actually it's very minor in your thesis and and the, the but the link between parasia which which we translate as boldness or confidence often and a purged consciousness is something I, I, again I, tr- I, I thought i'd made this point as clearly as more clearly but it turns out i didn't but um it's everywhere. It's it's in Philo. It's in Josephus. This link between, you know, Suneidus's, Parasia. Um, and, and so Philo um, draws on various terms from the Suneida word group. Um, but he's, he's, this link with Parasia is so interesting. I mean, Parasia is more than confidence. It's the ability to speak. And so if we look at Hebrews, there's a connection between holding on to our confession and Parasia. Okay, and so um, there's something about speaking and confessing the things of God in confidence, um, which are, you know, the opposite of having a consciousness of sin. And I mean, for example, in Josephus, when he describes Adam in the garden hiding from God, uh, uh, Adam is said to be silent, unable to speak because he he lacks a what? He lacks parasia. Now the reason for this is because Adam, according to Josephus, had a synedoti peneiro, an evil conscience. In other words, the, the 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 consequence of Adam's sin was his awareness of the sin, and subsequently, he he lived with a consciousness of sin and lived silent, unable to speak, and lacked parasia. So I found that as just as an aside point. I found that really interesting, and maybe in need for further research. In the
0: last major section of your book, you develop assurance in relation to the purified conscience. Could you review that for us?
1: Yeah, certainly. Well, well, as I arrived at my final section, there were lots of questions still unanswered. For example, what does a purified consciousness look like, and how exactly does Jesus's heavenly blood purge the consciousness and? Is this blood offering once for all? Is it perpetual, or is it both? And how does Jesus, as a heavenly high priest, how does he relate to his followers today? And how does this connect or differentiate from this overall theme of purification of the consciousness? And so essentially, in chapter five, I have a lot of questions, and I tried to address the tensions around these. and and so I try to look at Jesus' session separately his heavenly activity separately and his and his blood offering separately and and um just looking at what's the link in in these and um, I spend a bit of time looking at Jesus in, in Froman and I argue that this was the culmination and celebration of his earthly life of obedience Psalm 110 verse 1 that key early christian text I suggest is a celebration of the son it's not a reference to his heavenly blood offering. They're connected, of course, but they're they're, they're to be viewed separately as well. As high priest, Jesus is able to offer what I call divine help for his followers, just as he received divine help during his earthly trials. But Jesus's activity as a high priest should be distinguished from the role of his heavenly blood. So I see Jesus and his heavenly blood as having two separate roles for Hebrew. Jesus's presence in heaven as guarantor and mediator, offers assurance. In other words, Jesus guarantees and mediates the benefits of the new covenant, but Jesus' perpetual heavenly blood offers assurance for ongoing purgation, purification, and, and here I draw on the blood of Abel. I argue that it's not Abel's own blood, but the blood of his sacrificial offering. And what is interesting is Hebrews 12.24, which states that Jesus' sprinkled blood is currently speaking in heaven and is better than Abel's. Um, So so here we have Jesus' blood presently speaking in heaven. And what is this blood saying? Well, it's speaking perpetual purgation. The present problem in Hebrews, as mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, is that if you remove sacrificial ritual as what potentially happened with the recipients, you introduce a lack of assurance. Um, what the recipients desperately acquire, require is assurance regarding their guilt and their consciousness of sin. They need the reassurance of a heavenly ritual taking part on their behalf. And, and, and this is a problem I discovered. The, the scholars that argue for a once-for-all offering raise issues about how ongoing sin is dealt with and should be dealt with in, within the community and how we can reassure ourselves uh, and one another. And and the scholars that argue that Jesus' offering is not once for all, and instead Jesus is presently interceding and forgiving sin, leave the recipients with further doubts as to whether their sins are purged, and and really they are still living with a consciousness of sin. And there's no difference at this point with the argument then in Hebrews ten three, and um, it's not Levitical sacrifices which now offer a reminder of sin; it's Jesus, the intercessor, who reminds us. Of our sin, and I don't think this is very helpful. Um, intercession, as a term, just gets thrown away, around quite a bit, and I try to bring a bit of clarity in, final cha- in my fifth chapter around this. And um, at the end of the day, the word we translate into intercession, entunkano, um occurs only once in Hebrews seven twenty-five, and what this word means is is up for debate. I would say it does not mean Jesus is praying for us, and it doesn't mean that he's forgiving our sin. I argue it simply means help, and I'm not alone here. It means to help. It's divine help. Jesus is helping us to persevere and and to do many things. Um, And in 7.25, in that verse, we get the verb sozo, which really is, is talking about deliverance from a situation rather than the broad to save, is what we sometimes get in translation. And it's interesting, because just as Jesus was delivering in his trials, you know, the beginning of chapter five shows us that, he now delivers us, he he, he sozo, that that word again, so so d- he delivers us from ours. And um, again, in, in chapter five, I try to argue that Jesus' role as high priest is separate from his heavenly blood. So that's kind of the main thing there. Jesus mediates guarantees the benefits of the new covenant covenant um he offers us divine help but but his heavenly blood is what purges our sins and our consciousness of these sins is thus erased so jesus's blood offering not jesus his blood offering is once for all and is offered perpetually in heaven so uh, jesus's blood continues to speak and offer assurance to the people of god regarding their own pure status as they they continue to walk faithfully with him and so they now approach the presence of God with boldness and full assurance because their consciousness has been purged and they no longer live with some of those negative uh, things I mentioned earlier with dread, tum- timidity, the stain. And then I kind of, you know, and what does this look like practically? Um, well, it could look like preventing bringing the awareness of sin to one's consciousness, sort of like dormant guilt or. You know, the the purged consciousness of sin might denote removing the memory of sin. And a perpetually purged heavenly tabernacle, really, and in reality, means their consciousness of sin has been purged, sort of like, as I mentioned prior, a sacrificial amnesia. But, you know, whatever it looks like practically, it certainly offers encouragement for Christians today. You know, for people that struggle with feelings of guilt or, you know, to use the word defilement, whatever it is, there's a lot of encouragement here that Christians can take. So what are you up to these days? Any new publications in the works? Yeah, well, um, full-time ministry and ad hoc lecturing take up a lot of my time. But and the good news is I'm still finding space to read and research. And I'm, I'm just dis- really discerning for myself what this looks like. And I'm, in, I'm only young, got plenty of time to figure this out. But um whether I continue to go into academic writing or you know maybe do something more popular, um, I think sometimes I think the pastoral voice seems sparse in biblical studies and at the same time, you know academia and beautiful scholarship seems undervalued and absent in the church. So I kind of want to make a, a contribution in, in both these areas if, if, if possible, but we'll see. Um, at the moment, I'm enjoying doing a bit of everything um, and also being a dad and, and just enjoying all of that as well. So, um, yeah, just trying to balance, uh, find a balance with all of that. Um, but so much interests me and I think that's probably a problem. Um, and the same problem I had when I was deciding with a uh, postgraduate research, so much interests, so much interests me and, um, I'm sure I'll, uh, I'll find something, but, but the good news is Hebrews does still interest me. And just teaching this last semester on on the, on Hebrews and um, so many new questions, um, so w- we will see. Um, we'll see, but um, but time will tell.
0: Joshua, before we let you go, here's a bonus question: Who wrote the book of Hebrews?
1: Oh wow! Um, well, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I would say that. I mean, H- Herbert Bateman argues that I think there's 19 potential authors to hebrews so you can take your pick there um i mean there's some more serious suggestions i think sort of barnabas has been up there apollos they're the sort of potential uh, options there and um, i mean i i like the idea that it's anonymous i think you know only god knows that famous origin uh, quote there i think i think maybe it's uh, obviously someone wrote it but maybe it was deliberately um anonymous in its writing because you know you read hebrews and you know you you start reading it at the start of the book and it's you you get the sense that god's chosen now to speak through jesus's son and you get the sense that this is a heavenly message and this is something divine some sort of oracle that we need to listen to and maybe we don't want to get distracted by the human author and we don't want the human author to get in the way of this message So, so maybe there's some sort of you know, intention here in, in, in making it anonymous. Who knows? But yeah, interesting question, and I'm sure it'll keep being asked until we find out, uh, find the answers there.
0: It's been a delight, Josh. Thank you for being with us on the show today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I've had a great time um, chatting, and yeah, look forward to, to hearing back um, what, what we chatted about. So thank you, Michael. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network.